No, Trump probably has a great hog. It's going to be fucked. We're going to see it. We're going to be like, no, God damn it. God, no. That's- it's going to be eight inches and thick. And we're just going to be like. Jesus Christ. <laughs> that is, that is the legal analysis that people come here for. I was excited to have James back James on. has taken judicial notice. It's we live You're in the be worst in a block possible quote. world. You're going right? to be in a block quote in a complaint that's like Mike Dicta uh, <laughs> uh, with today's date, right. and it's going to say host host, and Charles going to flip out. Host James is going to say, and it's going to say uh, eight inches and thick. So people people were speculating. About right, I'm going to have thoughts. to file an intervention just to like have that paragraph stricken. <laughs> you don't even have to strike the whole paragraph, Your Honor. Just strike the word host. No, we live in the worst of all possible worlds. We can all agree that. Uh, And bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. And therefore, Trump has got a beautiful penis. Like, that's it. QED. That's my proof. I don't believe this. I get rid of those two evil maniacs who try to ruin my show. And I get two evil guests who are trying to ruin my show. Just who came up with the stupid idea of giving Space Ghost a talk show in the first place? How they gave his own show to Tad Goldstool. Any given second he could go mad postal. Stay waving that power band space cannon and had the nerve to jump Hey in everybody, face. welcome so to episode 14 of Mike Dicta, America's best named legal podcast. I am your host, Charles Starr. Uh, back with another all-star panel, including... The hell, dude. Welcome back, Tarek. You want me to say it? I, you gotta I'm, say it. I'm the hell, dude. There he is. <laughs> uh, it's two in a row. Uh, say hello again to Andy. Hey, everybody. Uh, Andy is on Xanax. Everyone, uh, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a couple of weeks. Uh, say hi to James. Hey, everybody. And last but not least, it's been a while, but she's back. Everyone say hello to Robin. Hi, everybody. There we go. Uh, We have a lot to do. uh, And whenever we have a lot to do, it also means we have to do Michael Cohen. And so (laughs) so once again, we start with Michael Cohen. You always think that maybe there's nothing to update. But literally, while uh, the episode 13 was uh, in production and in the very early stages of production. Of course, that's when Judge Kimball Wood uh, appointed the special master. Uh, They were fighting about that the last time we spoke in episode 13. But she did uh, appoint a special master to review the privileged documents seized by uh, seized by the U.S. attorney. Uh, and they chose, this was, this was a weird kerfuffle, uh, on Twitter. Uh, they chose Barbara Jones, retired Southern district of New York, uh, judge and current partner at Bracewell LLP, formerly Bracewell and Giuliani. And so everyone got really mad that someone, uh, with, a sort of connection that someone could make to Rudy Giuliani was chosen as the special master. But I mean, to be clear, like Giuliani's been out of this for at least as long as I've been paying attention to politics. Uh, like he's completely. Dis- when did that start? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't put him on a T. Okay. Don't put him on a T. Uh, he has been, he has been away from uh, Bracewell for a few years. 
Uh, and actually, he didn't overlap with Barbara Jones at all. Okay. Uh, she started. She started a few months after he left, which is part of why I thought uh, the people who were drawing those conclusions, I think, were being uh, being a little silly about it. So, you know, in just sort of what's up, James? So she was a federal judge. Yes. Yes. And then she stopped being a federal judge to be a partner in a law firm. Well, she, no, she she was a federal judge and then she took senior status yeah. and then she retired. And then once she retired, my guess is that her legal practice was a combination of rainmaking and doing arbitrations and stuff like that. Special mastering. Special Something, mastering. I, my yeah. guess is she had more of a kind like a really sort of cushy, sinecure eminence grease role. Maybe mediated some cases. Hmm? Maybe mediated some cases. Yeah, and probably and probably was just sort of a smart person in the room to sort of bounce things off of, you know. Okay. I mean, so this is not like know. when John Roberts complained, Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, John Roberts complained like two years into taking the job, we get paid like shit. This is miserable work. Who wants to be a federal judge these days? This is not that. <laughs> <laughs> I went from making a million dollars a year to having a lifetime appointment. This sucks. I actually do know someone though who was like you know, state judge, but he, he was asked to run and he wouldn't because it would, he was like, I wouldn't make enough money. And I was just like, no, I think that's true of a lot of people. I just think that, I just think that the, the federal bench where they can't get rid of you, um, (laughs) is like, look, if you want to be a millionaire, it's probably not, uh, it's probably not a short term solution, but it is also probably a long term solution. (laughs) But I mean, I think the to me, the short answer was Barbara Jones was a Clinton appointee who served in the Southern District of New York, probably had an office within within hollering distance of Judge Kimball Woods (laughs) office for a lot of that time. Uh, They were, you know, they have. Two two female judges who've served on the federal bench for decades together. They probably know each other incredibly well. And I don't think that Kimball Wood was giving her this uh, to bury it on behalf of Donald Trump. I mean, Kimball Wood was a Clinton appointee, too. I think she just was like, OK, here's someone with integrity that no one can reasonably object to, even if she got a soft landing at Giuliani's old firm in her judicial retirement. Oh, and in fact, uh, the, any connection to Giuliani, even no matter how tenuous, makes the Cohen side of the equation less likely to object. Right. right. I mean, like, it'd be hard right. to claim that, you know, this was somehow you know, fucking him over. Uh, and right. this is a person who sat for a lot of years in a very hot uh, trial court uh, and knows her stuff. Yeah. And so, and so I guess they updated the court and they're supposed to have all of the government's production by May 11th. The May 11th, the government will have everything that they seized organized in a digestible form for, uh, Judge Jones and her team to go through, though there was one notable exception. The government said we may not have all of we may not have his telephones. Sixteen. Sixteen. They seized 16 phones. Jesus. Michael Cohen, which is which is what they call uh, the honest man's number of phones. Wait, 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 like 16 landlines. 
No, no, no. 16 cell phones, burners, etc. Oh my god. <laughs> no, they didn't they didn't seize his phones like, you know, uh <laughs> Like literally ripping wires out of the wall. <laughs> that was the mental image that I had. No. Because it's no. funnier. No, the no, funnier okay. image is definitely that he just has a bag with 16 cell phones in it that he just <laughs> rummages through. And he's like, nah, take this one. Right. Every, t- every time it rings, he does it. He sets them all to the same default tone. <laughs> and so he doesn't know which one to pick up. This is up. literally a scene in Breaking Bad with, with Saul Goodman, where he opens up the drawer and there's 30 cell phones in there. And he gives them. He got that idea from Breaking Bad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Amazing. He's watching Better Call Saul he and taking notes. He got his scams from The Sopranos. He got his ops from Breaking, from Breaking Bad. He, he really does have his handle on prestige television, at least. That's yeah. true. The next move is to uh, blow up the Southern District of New York courthouse with uh, Dragon's Fire. <laughs> oh, sorry. Game of Thrones spoilers. Game of Thrones yeah. spoilers. I'm sorry. Excuse yeah. me. Um, and so then, just when we thought uh, Michael Cohen had done it all, parachuting in from out of nowhere... <laughs> Absolutely incredible. Comes the uh, aforementioned former mayor of New York, Rudolph Giuliani, (laughs) to clarify (laughs) that everything we had previously heard from uh, Donald Trump was uh, not true. (laughs) On behalf of my client, I just want to make clear uh, he was lying before uh, (laughs) or or possibly he's lying now. I mean... (laughs) One of those options is probably correct. Nope. He is lying both times. <laughs> is, is the likely answer. Uh, and so, and so he says, and so once again, it's one of these things where they're trying to thread this incredibly delicate line, which I think we talked about when we first talked about Cohen 60 years ago. Uh, we said that like when Michael Cohen was saying this, I did this, but he didn't know. And he's like really trying to thread this needle about it's not like so he's not violating the New York bar ethics rules. And he's also not violating the election law rules. And so he's trying to do all of these things at the same time. And so everything he says it, it like kind of has weird ambiguities. And from what I could tell, the current Donald Trump position is that Michael Cohen paid off Stormy Daniels. He did it just to save the president from personal embarrassment, having nothing to do with the upcoming election, even though they wanted to get it done in an expedited way so that she would be locked down in an NDA before the election. Um, Imagine that level of loyalty. Wait, wait, wait. (laughs) And he paid her back. I mean, he paid him back. Trump paid Cohen back. Uh, Without knowing what the money was for, but only knowing generally that Cohen had cleaned up some mess of some kind. (laughs) And so he needed to be paid back. And he did it through a series of retainer style payments that made no reference to what the money is for. That is the current position is he did it out of the goodness of his heart 
like a good soldier does. And I just pay and Trump just paid him back because that's what a good fixer's client does. And therefore, it violated no laws except for common sense and any uh, morality. Or plausibility. Yes. Imagine being that loyal to any human being. No, but it's more like it's more like I know what his job is. His job is to get rid of things. He's too dumb to rip me off. So if he's saying he spent $130,000, then I'll just give it to him. And my regular course of business is such that my regular course of business is such that uh, he could easily have spent one hundred and thirty thousand dollars cleaning up some mess of mine. I don't know. It happens all the time. And so now if you were wondering where Cohen gets the walking around money, he has been buying Manhattan property in all cash transactions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then within just two or three years, has been flipping them at triple and quadruple premiums. Absolutely. Also in all cash transactions. There you go. Amazing. And Fuck yeah. And I don't That's legal as fuck, I'm sure. I don't <laughs> want to give a specific legal conclusion that this is obviously money laundering. But I do want to make the casual observation. That it seems like money. <laughs> well, but this if, is, you, if you consider the guy was doing uh, staged accidents. Yes. Uh, right. Oh, for insurance is, yes. I almost thank, thank you, you for not letting us miss earlier in his Please earlier explain, in his career. Tar- Please, Tarek, explain. explain this. No, I mean, this was this was some years back. But Rolling Stone, uh, now that Michael Cohen has, uh, you know, really, really taken over the public stage. Ro- Rolling Stone looked into his his earlier career. Uh, and he did a lot of these staged accidents where, you know, you'd basically have somebody ram somebody from behind and submit a, a, a phony insurance claim. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I this was, was his whole practice points. area. Yeah, this was awesome. his practice area before. Well, no, no, no. Uh, Robin, I hope you weren't in one of these kinds where you staged, you were hit by someone who was like just trying to access your insurance. Yeah. Okay, this is not what Michael Cohen was doing. Oh no! What Michael Cohen was doing was he was uh, the he was the attorney for the plaintiff, but the plaintiff and the defendant were in cahoots. Oh, gotcha! So both both sides were being paid, and like the not only were both sides being paid to get into an accident to you know get to just screw the insurance company as the third party. But I think they were also connected to uh, a series of doctors, also Michael Cohen clients, who were then running up fake bills uh, yes. uh, for the plaintiff's treatment. Gotcha. Guys, I actually uh, love him. I actually love him. That's, it sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty and good so, yeah, if you There's can nothing get wrong it. with this. So Michael Cohen never got in trouble for any of this because he just represented he represented the plaintiffs. And I think in one case, he represented some of the doctors who got indicted. But his role uh, at the time and who knows how like it would be looked at with people seeing all like people putting all the dots 
connecting all the dots, I don't know that they would necessarily see it the same way today. But I think at the time, he was just, you know, the attorney of record representing people in these disparate cases. And no one really put all of it together to put him him in the center of it. So he is not officially... <laughs> uh, he is not officially in cahoots with anyone. He was just the attorney of record for all of these people who were uh, in uh, dubious litigation. It, it could happen innocently. Uh, I'm is, sure. Yes, isn't there it, it isn't there happened. another Cohen piece though? I thought I thought there was another Go thing on. where like he he he'd taken the fifth, but then suddenly he was making public comments on the very subject about which he had taken the privilege. Uh, he did not make well. It depends on how we're going to define public here. It sounds like he was just hanging out with Donnie Deutsch. Yes. As one does. Uh, He took the fifth and then Trump said something. And I don't remember what exactly it was that Trump said. And then Michael Cohen told Donnie or maybe Giuliani said something. And he denied whatever one of them said to Donnie Deutsch, who then went out and repeated it. And so, yeah, it's a very that is that also is a very interesting way of taking uh, the Fifth Amendment. For the for the, for the listeners, uh, if you take a privilege on something, they can't if you take a privilege on something like attorney client or the Fifth Amendment privilege or something, it's off the table. But if you start making public statements or if you do answer a question about this, they're allowed to ask you the implica- about the implications of what you just said within that limited context. And then they're allowed to ask you about the implications of what you say in response to those questions. And they can pull that thread as far as it goes. And yeah, you open the door. Right. Though I think, though I think he probably, I think his answer on that will ultimately be that he was just really vague. Like all he did was Giuliani said something and he was just like, ah, that's bullshit, but he didn't explain how or whatever. Um, So, yeah. So I think, I think his answer, and I don't know that, I don't know (laughs) that it's really sufficient. That's bullshit is itself a statement. (laughs) What did you mean when you said it was bullshit? Yep. And so, and so he can't stop himself. And so that uh, does anyone have any? What did we miss? Is there anything else in the Cohen update? Well, I mean, just just the fact that Rudy uh, coming in at the last minute and saying that this was all tied back to tied back to Trump. That Trump they both <laughs> knew about it, paid it back. At one point, he said, "You know, we couldn't have this coming out uh, right at, <laughs> at the election time." Obviously, can you imagine uh, you know, October fifteenth? I mean, just went on. Hannity, of all people, you know, another Michael Cohen, another client. Michael Cohen client, yeah. uh, and just and just just completely implicated Trump in the entire thing after all of those machinations <laughs> to keep him out, uh, which all to right. me is no, just he's either way smarter than me or as dumb as I think he is. And I'm just trying to figure out which one it is. And I mean, it's like it's really funny because you just you figure if you get him talking long enough. He will eventually say, look, Sean, we could have had President Clinton. That's basically what he said. He said uh, this was coming out. We couldn't have this coming out around the around the election. I mean, it was, could you imagine if that dropped on October 15th? Exactly. Well, great. Exactly. Good job, man. Any any plausible deniability. Thanks for giving that away. Yeah. If you Which, didn't if you were wondering if it was possibly possibly <laughs> not a campaign expenditure. 
Mr. Giuliani was there to clarify that, oh, oh yes, it absolutely was in service of the campaign. It's definitely that they're stupid because the the uh, Access Hollywood tape dropped like October 1st. And that like it put his numbers down, but it also was like he didn't drop out or anything. And like yeah. two weeks later, not only does this guy say that he's allowed to sexually assault women whenever he wants because he's famous, but also he paid off a porn star. No, but he well, wouldn't have paid her uh, off. Oh, okay, right? yeah, or, or didn't pay her off. Also, he, he had sex been with a porn star. It. Like, oh, um, oh, you've really damaged Trump's credibility. Oh man, his family values credentials are completely hosed now. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I'm not. Sure, I'm not sure why they didn't just let it out so yeah. he could say, "Look, why do I have to grab women? Beautiful women are chasing me." Like they for talk example, to me on the golf Stephanie Clifford. <laughs> <laughs> um, but. Yeah, I all I know is and this is I'm not I'm not a crisis PR guy, okay? I don't know these things for sure, but as a rule of thumb, uh a television appearance did not go well <laughs> if you have to release a clarifying statement the next day. No. <laughs> that I meant the opposite of what I said. Well, but didn't Trump it yeah. wasn't Trump's statement that oh, it's his first day. He's still figuring out how we lie. It's not that way. case that uh that came out last week i guess uh the case has been around forever because it's been around i think it was filed in 2012 but a number of victims of 9-11 have sued uh saudi arabia and iran uh, among others, there are like there are a lot of these cases but they're all consolidated yeah, in yeah uh, it's all consolidated through the multi-district litigation panel in front of Judge George Daniels in the Southern District of New York. And uh, and the recent case was a default judgment against Iran, who literally has not responded at all, right? I guess they met the requirements of service, but then Iran... Uh, just threw the complaint in the garbage and they have never responded to it at all. And so uh, George Daniels, in accordance with JASTA, the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, has held them liable for their connections to uh, 9-11 and has awarded what I think amounts to over $7 billion in damages Uh to the various family members of the victims, yeah, Hunter Fitzgerald Trader families. Well, if 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 I if I if I'm not mistaken, as you said, this is a consolidated bunch of suits. Yeah, and Iran is in Iran is in here in part because Saudi Arabia impleted them. Um, Saudi Arabia fought. Yeah, yeah. No, Saudi Arabia <laughs> yeah, fought was- fought against uh, JASTA quite heavily. Invested a lot of money 
uh, trying yeah, to they beat fucked it. that up. Uh, and among the things that they uh, did as part of this suit uh, was plead in Iran, I think, uh, and say, "Hey, it was, actually, it wasn't wasn't us. It was it was those guys." So uh, I think that's how they're in here. There's so much here uh, that we should probably back up a little for some of the framework. The first is the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which mostly prevents uh, anyone from suing other countries in United States courts, right? That's the big statute that makes it generally uh, not illegal is the wrong word, but non-justiciable to sue uh, a foreign country. In U.S. courts. As a a matter of self-interest, right? I mean, we don't want to be defending these sorts of suits in other foreign jurisdictions against us for all of our war crimes. Uh, Yeah, so there's there there definitely is like there definitely is a a comedy concern uh, about equal treatment. But there's also other concerns, diplomatic issues, um, whatever suits they do have, they want funneled at least to federal court. But, yeah, they want to waive jurisdiction on almost everything. So the, the main reason you can get around the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act is if the country is acting in a commercial capacity in the United States, you can sue them like any other counterparty in a transaction. You can sue them for personal injury occurring in the United States. You know, like if a diplomatic vehicle, you know, the Canadian ambassador runs you down on Fifth Avenue, that personal injury suit is still viable. And then the other one, and this is before JASTA, the other big one is uh, there was an exception specifically for countries designated as state sponsors of terrorism who committed uh, torture or similar war crimes, even overseas, right? That has always been uh, that has always been an exception to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, or it has at least long been an exception to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. And what JASTA did was, I guess, and specifically because of this suit, uh, specifically because of this suit, the like uh, Saudi Arabia essentially said, this doesn't, this, we're not designated as a state sponsor of terrorism, so you can't actually sue us for this. And so Congress got together and passed JASTA, uh, which essentially removes the State Department from the equation, <clears throat> because now you don't have to be officially designated a state sponsor of terrorism as long as you meet the statutory requirements of, you know, a terrorist act, they can still go after you. So, of course, Obama vetoed it because the executive branch always kind of wants that prerogative. And this was literally the only veto override in Obama's two terms was Congress was like, no, 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 we mean it. We want this suit to be viable. And so they overrode the veto and changed the rules about which uh, foreign governments could be sued for terrorism. Well, and the biggest difference for that, it seemed to be that they basically were carving out a space for countries like Saudi Arabia that have been, you know, known to create separate entities in order to funnel money through. So it, like basically the entire thing was it doesn't have to be a country's military or like specific actors in an official capacity 
if you're getting shadow money that goes to terrorist organizations and they carry out an attack, they're liable. Like you're going to be liable for the money you're giving. Right. Right. They added agents. Yeah. They added agents to like just the agencies of. Yeah. So, and so, yeah, it expanded it that way, too. So this is part. JASTA is actually part of a, of a long uh, program to widen the state sponsored terrorism exception to Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. In 2002, there was this Terrorism Risk Insurance Act, which opened up all of these blocked assets. So there were all of these there were all of these suits in the 80s, like the ones that uh, Robin brought up about Beirut and stuff. And so there were there were suits against Cuba by uh, Cuban nationals who came here and had their, you know, their slave plantations seized from them. And they were really sad about that. <laughs> and uh, and suits against Iran. And so but they, they couldn't get anything because the thing is, like when a country is on the state sponsors of terrorism uh, designated list from the secretary of state, they don't have any assets in the United States, or if they do, they are under uh, a lot of sanctions and specifically those assets are blocked. Mm -hmm. And so they can't be attached by any judgment that by some rando plaintiff. Now the terrorism risk insurance act in 2002 opened all that up and said, it doesn't matter. Anybody, if those assets are blocked, great, come and get them. Uh, And then in 2008, they, they revamped the entire state sponsor terrorism exception to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. And it's all part of a general program here of which JASTA is kind of like the last step of just removing the executive's waiver authority over any of this. So that way, like the president can't just uh, get in the way of any of this and just allowing victims of, of uh, you know, terrorist acts to, to sue places. Yeah. And there's been like this. This has come up at the Supreme Court a few times. I mean, in 2012, you know, like I said, uh, Saudi Arabia challenged JASTA um, and they basically w- the main claim was this is essentially uh, they said this is essentially a bill of attainder. <laughs> you passed this law just to change the rule of decision in our case while our case was pending, because I think it was originally dismissed on the grounds that Saudi Arabia was not a state sponsor of terrorism. And while it was pending in the Second Circuit, they just changed the law. (laughs) And so they could be sued. And so they were just like, you can't do that. Uh, And what the Supreme Court said was, while it's fairly clear that Congress changed the rule of decision here in order to influence your case, They didn't do it specifically and only for your case. This is the going forward rule for all countries similarly situated. And Congress is allowed to do that. And if it's retroactive and it happens to affect pending cases, tough shit to you as a defendant. But that's within Congress's authority. And the only two dissenters on that was a weird pair. It was Roberts and Sotomayor. I thought the dissent was actually really good because it does kind of bring this whole point around not only the problem with, you know, clearly this is kind of an exceptional circumstance because it is a terrorist act or whatever, but they raised a really good point about, you know, shifting the goalposts to what becomes and essentially eliminating all of the... um barriers so that Congress can't kind of come in and change specific cases. Because one of the things that they did bring up was that these cases were specifically identified in the law. 
like the consolidation seemed to be, they kept saying it was referred to by docket number in the actual yeah. section. Yeah. Though, I mean, though the, though the majority's response to that was even when those cases end though, this will remain the law. And so, I mean, it ended up just being a fight about, you know, co- like Congress's prerogative and they found that they just had broadly uh, the authority to do this, you know, and they cited other similar cases where Congress had done it before. And they said, basically, the only time we didn't let them do it is when they were specifically like, change the answer on this one. <laughs> and they picked like a specific case and just kind of overruled it and tried to retroactively change a final judgment that had been entered in a case. Yeah. And they're like, that's a little different than this, where they're just changing the entire sort of jurisdictional schema of uh, the interaction between federal courts and foreign sovereigns. Yeah. Like I just, just reading through it, it and you know, it, I think in some ways it does seem like an odd pairing, but on the other hand, to me, it kind of made sense because this is kind of the one weird overlap that every, that they would have about overly broad congressional rights to interfere in the judicial process. Yeah, I don't know that I would have expected only those two on that narrow ground, which is why which is why it's just sort of surprising yeah. um, to me. Uh, the other the other Supreme Court case that and now I forgot I realized that I forgot to write down uh, the name. But in in one of the earlier cases, this may have been the Marine Barracks case, but I think it was post JASTA also. But someone had previously won very similarly a default judgment of like $175 million against Iran. And Iran didn't respond. They don't really have any assets to seize. But what they did have is they had like there are these Iranian antiquities on loan from government to a museum in Chicago. And so they sued in federal court in Illinois to try to seize (laughs) these like Mesopotamian tablets of the property of the Iranian government. Yeah, I mean, once once Um, you're holding a default judgment for an enormous amount of money, uh, everybody's going to get real creative with their theories. There's there's been a bunch of stuff like this where uh, like a charity was nationalized by Cuba well after the lawsuit. And that charity at the time had some assets within the United States. And so, like, judgment holders, people who had a judgment, a default judgment, where they hadn't presented any evidence or anything, it was just Cuba hadn't shown up because they don't accept jurisdiction over their revolution from a federal district court. Uh, they So they have this default judgment, and then they go take, they, they, they try to seize this charity's assets because they just happen to still be in the United States. The, and, and there are a number of different cases like that. I won't list them all, but there are a lot of places where they'll... How did that go? Uh, not great. <laughs> oh, so they they didn't let them seize. I the don't charity think assets. that one went well, if I remember correctly. Because they also did not allow them to seize the tablets from the museum. This is more of a policy point about this, but one of the things that can't come up. My my friend wrote a note about this, and uh, I, I'm just putting a plug in for his point, which I think is generally correct, which is that when plaintiffs are able to get default judgments, you may end up. Because uh, and the reason they're able to get default judgments is because, of course, the other side doesn't show up to court because Iran doesn't accept the jurisdiction of the United States over its activities or Cuba. They they also don't other other you know quote state sponsors of terrorism. 
you get these you can get these massive judgments just based on whatever you plead in your complaint. Yep. And then uh, what ends up what can end up happening is that in the future, in the event that somehow something excellent were to happen and we were to try to normalize economic relationships with these countries, you can I mean, you're you can imagine how creative the theories would get by the from the judgment holders then when assets actually start to flow between the two countries. Yep. And, and these would be significant headwinds when you're talking about judgments of billions. Yeah. I mean, I think, honestly, it would be the sort of thing that if we were ever normalizing diplomatic relations with any of those countries, it would probably require like all of those default judgments to be wiped right. out by some kind of statute just to just to prevent anyone from having. And to then you have them. a takings claim. But yes. Yeah. It's so American of us to be like, yeah, we're going to sue other countries and hold them tortiously liable. For war crimes. If that, if, if <laughs> the Cuba yet, one if, really like, gets me, if literally any, like if Iraq did that to us, could you imagine the outrage? We're returning those tablets, like, though. It's every fine. business owner in Baghdad got together and was like, hey, you know, we had like malls here. Yeah, they just posted <laughs> earlier about how they're finally fixing the uh, like express tunnels that connected different parts of a major hospital that apparently we blew up for some reason. Jeez. Because why not? Um, yeah, because why not? And they're just, they're fixing those now. It's 2018. We invaded 15 years ago in March. Uh, so it's fine. Everything in Iraq is fine. What would they have to sue us over? <laughs> we fixed it's it. It's fine. I just think we can't let the segment go without saying uh, death to America. Uh, all, all hail the show. Why yeah, be anyways. like that, dude? <laughs> I'm just uh, listen. They say it for all kinds of things. You, it's not like it's not literal. It's not a literal that, death to America. It's you fine. live in a place that people don't want to bomb. I, That's no, not there true. are a lot of people. Oh, there are a lot of people. <laughs> Hang on a second. Wait a minute. What a great way to end a segment on on nine eleven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, just a mulligan. Just a mulligan. Though I think she may have been making a white. I was. The red state uh, multi-attorney general litigation led by uh, Paxton in Texas uh, to block DACA. He wants an injunction from the uh, district court, the Eastern District of Texas, I believe. He is suing uh, to enjoin uh, the Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals Act entirely, uh, which is kind of like... uh, a humidifier and a dehumidifier working against each other because uh, all like all the blue state attorney generals <laughs> or attorneys general uh, have also sued in separate courts to stop Trump from ending uh, DACA, which he has uh, officially done. But uh, the injunction has stopped him. From Love to live in a functional democracy. I just want to say, <laughs> as like a native Texan. This is so embarrassing. This is just uh, like seems par for the course. It, it's par yeah. for the course for the politics, but I know that like 
it it doesn't have a ton of support on the ground from people because you know the DACA kids have all like gone to school with us and gone to college with us and now work in Texas making money and paying taxes. But anyways, that's my tax rant yep. of the afternoon evening. Yeah. They, well, I mean, uh, they. I will say this. I will say this for the the Paxton and uh, complaint to get an injunction against Doc is that it's not bad. Uh, it's certainly it's not, not bad. bad in the forum where it was filed. It's not yeah. short. Because no, you mean yeah. you mean in terms of the <laughs> it's quality? It's definitely not Are you short. About the quality. Seven uh, pages, right? Well, just 75 of factual vermins and, and causes of action. I think it's an excellent complaint as far as writing, as far as craft. Yeah, no, it definitely. Yep. Yeah. It's really well put together. This is not the usual bullshit that we make fun yeah. of. Like, they put their time they, in. Uh, I think I want to leave this for, uh, I want to leave this for uh, Andy since he said it before. But Andy, what is half of this complaint? Yeah, like half the complaint is block quotes of Obama on various interviews and talk shows and speeches uh, saying, uh, listen, I can't do this on my own. I cannot do this on my own. I'm going to need a legislation behind me to, to help me do this. And I need you to, I, I don't have the power to do this on my own. And then, and then they go on to point out how he, he nefariously did it all on his own. Yeah, I mean, the the earlier stage of this litigation is like first Obama issued DACA, right? which allowed children brought to the United States by their parents uh, illegally, uh, but who had lived their whole lives here, basically. Uh, It allowed them to stay in the United States and made them, like, it took them off the deportation priority list and it gave them other uh, benefits. And then when Congress didn't act, Obama kind of was like, well, <clears throat> I mean, fuck it. If I'm going to do it on my own, I'm just going to do it. And he then expanded those rights in a second DACA executive order. And he also issued uh, DAPA, which was like the the P stood for parents. And so it's like if this was like if you if a parent of an American born citizen would then be a low deportation priority, right? This was literally like the Republican freak out about anchor babies made flesh. Yeah. It was Obama issuing an executive order <clears throat> saying that any alien parents of uh, American citizens could then stay. And an earlier round of this litigation enjoined both of those things, right? Though both of those executive orders got knocked out on a combination, I think, of the Administrative Procedure Act and the Take Care Clause. And so a district court judge in Texas was like, nope, on all of this. And at the time, Texas then withdrew their own suit uh, against DACA on the grounds that they just expected it to go away anyway. But then when Trump uh, tried to withdraw DACA and courts all over the country started enjoining Trump from getting rid of DACA, the Paxton and the other, uh, and the all other the states you would uh, red state attorney general. All hmm? the states you would expect, really. Yep. All of them, uh, 
then turned around and said, no, we're going to, if we have to, I guess we have to. So they just sued to get rid of it. And like Andy said, a lot of the complaint is it's one Obama saying over and over again that it had to be done by statute and not exactly. No, even better, even better. It's so Obama too, because it's, this isn't how democracy works. Yeah. Uh, this isn't how our system yeah. works. <laughs> right. This isn't how democracy works, but I'm doing it. Um, you know, it's like, come on, guy. Yeah. And then the other thing was one of the ways that the one of the ways that the blue state attorney general attorneys general would get injunctions against Trump getting rid of uh, DACA is that they would say that his executive order violated the Administrative Procedures Act. And so what Paxson says in this suit is, well, if it's a violation of the Administrative Procedures Act to get rid of DACA, then it was a violation of the Administrative Procedures Act to issue DACA in the first place. And so they're just using the they're using the blue state arguments against them. Not that the judges in those cases didn't address that argument, but there's probably a much more receptive audience in the Eastern District of Texas than there was in San Francisco or in uh, Brooklyn. I also think they're using some of the craft against them. Like like the fact that the first time I read one of these long slew of like block quotes from Obama, I was annoyed with it. When I got to the second one, I was like, oh, you're kind of using the exact thing that all of the injunctions against, all the motions for injunction against Trump have done, which is quote him on social yep. media and quote him. And uh, I found that quite clever, actually. Even though I hate these people and I hope they die, I was like, this is a really well-written complaint. They complain- <laughs> I mean, these are not these are not bad. No, they attorneys. completely inverted the motion for quiet part loud. <laughs> exactly right, uh, and turned it on Obama. Yeah. Well, and the the relief they ask for is, you know, to the extent that any of this can really be considered reasonable, I think they did a really smart thing because they didn't actually act ask for like all of DACA to be repealed. They were like. We're not even, you know, like if you guys want to do this, great, but we're not even going to talk about the people who already have deferred action. What we're wanting to enjoin is continued acceptance and processing of applications. And I thought that was really smart because. Well, yeah, though, it's not quite that. It's not quite that because one of the things that DACA does is you have to renew every two years. Right. And so what they say is we're not asking you to round these people up now. Right. (laughs) But we don't want you to issue any new applications and you're going to enjoin them from renewing any current holders. And so they have time to get their affairs in order, but it will then die on the vine if you issue this injunction because the federal government can no longer renew it. Right. But in terms of just how the complaint is structured, that's a much more facially reasonable complaint. I think like, yeah. Cause they say several times we have, you have the authority to rescind all these authorizations and there's a couple not times they remark on. Yeah. They remark on like maybe I think about a thousand people have used, uh, have like used DACA as part of like a step ladder of eventually becoming mm-hmm. citizens. And yeah. I, when they mentioned that, I was like, oh, God, they're going to ask that those people's citizenships be revoked. And they don't. So, the, yeah, these people are they, they don't want the blood in their hands. Yeah. They're not out and out fascists, but they just want everyone to lose it after two years. When, and then when when dot dot yeah. dot when I was litigating, we'd call this uh, we call this the appearance of reasonableness. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah, you exactly. ask for the draconian thing, but you act like, uh, well, no, we're going to do it in a very reasonable way. Right. And uh, for the audience, uh, grandfathering like this is a standard way to try to dampen the impact of the thing that you're doing. Uh, we're really only talking about forward looking, although, as Charles points out, there's there's some exceptions to that. And uh, but we're really only talking about doing this going forward. Anybody who's got it right now, you know, we don't we want to leave them alone. This is totally fine. But grandfathering is a very normal way to uh, to give the appearance of reasonableness. Yeah, and I also don't think I also don't think mm. that they really mm. uh I don't think they they could have articulated a plausible way to revoke the to revoke the citizenships awarded. Like you said, it was sort of a step ladder, but they're just like, look, <clears throat> they're saying it's not a pathway to citizenship. And I think on the merits it ends up not really being a pathway to citizenship, but they say some of these people used their presence here and various other factors to get this other specific immigration status. And then once they got that immigration status, they weren't really dreamers anymore. They were this new category. And once they were in that new category, uh, that new category opened up possibilities for citizenship. And like you said, about 2000, uh, somewhere like 1500 or something, uh, 1500 of the former dreamers have uh, ascended to citizenship, even though in the in the sort of conservative way of thinking about it, if you entered illegally, there really shouldn't be a way for you to unring that bell without. Uh, without leaving the country first and then applying in the ordinary course and going to the back of the line. One of the things, so I, I realize I said twice that I, I think the complaint is well-written. I don't want to let them off the hook entirely because I think that section four, I don't know if you guys remember this, but the part where they get into the humanitarian crisis. Yeah, that was yeah. real real poorly substantiated. <laughs> very, very yeah, bad. I have a, a great paragraph I want to pull out of that one, but keep going. Uh, no, I'm just introducing it. I mean, they, they're saying that, uh, essentially they're saying that like the United States created this kind of like attractive nuisance where uh, by, <laughs> by saying that like, by, by making people think that we would let them in, uh, it's created a, a huge wave of people trying to get into the country, and they, they use terms like international child smuggling to make it sound as if the, the problem is that these children are being endangered. Uh, but what really is happening is that parents are paying to have their kids brought over to them because with the hope that the kids will be able to stay. They mention in particular little girls with Hello Kitty backpacks and the phone numbers of American relatives. You know, uh, DACA is the real Pizzagate. <laughs> yes. yes. That's absolutely yes. what they're going for. Yes. It's just the mental image of this, like, sad little girl and you're supposed to be all horrified that she's being trafficked but you're realizing that it's like a bunch of scary dudes with guns at the border like being like nah you can't come here you gotta go like what okay i just think it backfired and, and texas says uh that this crisis this crisis wave of immigration of like people trying to reunite their families or refugees uh, the crisis has imposed enormous law enforcement costs on plaintiff states. <laughs> For example, <laughs> the that. Texas Department of Public Safety estimated in 2014 that it spent $1.3 million a week on troopers and resources to deal with the immigration surge. In addition, former Governor Perry deployed 1,000 National Guards troops to the border at a cost of $38 million. 
So Texas is saying we spent a hundred million dollars patrolling the border with uh, hanging out of the back of pickup trucks with shotguns, yeah. but you didn't have to fucking do right. that. There's already a customs and border patrol. You're just tooling around the Rio Grande because you want to, because it makes your dick hard. That's not an actual Forcing cost. Us to spend millions of dollars on political stunts. Yeah. <laughs> you are. Can you, look, there is no other circumstance under which the state of Texas would have uh, paid cops overtime. I mean, <laughs> uh, like this is this is, I think, a policy that was lobbied for by the police yeah. unions. Well, and these kids are victims too because they're being trafficked to their parents. They're being trafficked. <laughs> They may someday see a relative. <laughs> and that's, and we cannot allow that. One of the things that, that the makes us ultimately like, per, you know, stink as a section is not just the implausibility of it or the way that they're trying to drum up good things and turn and make them as bad things, but also that it's really difficult to tie these third party actions, like people trying to cross the Rio Grande as, uh, as, as stemming from the DACA policy. I don't I don't know that those really I mean, I suppose it depends on the judge you get. But those might be allegations that I think don't stand uh, plausibility that the reason people are trying to come to America is because of DACA solely. And, not you know, there was nobody trying to get, you know, the Republicans have been freaking out about people waiting through the Rio Grande for decades now. Right. I mean, but that's typical. Like that is that is the standard Republican line on all normalization and amnesty is like they consider like amnesty the original sin of immigration policy because if you ever do it every foreign citizen in the world assumes you're going to do it again and so like what a tragedy that would be <laughs> <laughs> but i mean but that's the theory is like once amnesty has been given you essentially send out a signal that even though you say it's the last one, uh, nobody believes you because if you show empathy once, you'll probably show it twice. I do want to say before we get off this section that we can't just let a Ken Paxton lawsuit go without mentioning that he, from basically the moment he was sworn in as Attorney General of Texas, has been uh, facing criminal charges for securities fraud. <laughs> yeah, uh, because the details uh, on that would be great. The details, I have the details on that pulled straight from wikipedia.org, but <laughs> oh, based in, I'm a so, yeah, so, so everything I'm saying is 100% true, and I'm, I'm protected from all defamation claims when I say that uh, while he was a legislator, he, start, he picked up work for this company, and he went around uh, and told his legal clients, his colleagues in the legislature, and his friends that this company... And it had some like hacky, obviously fake name, like Sylvanergy or something. And he was like, these guys have bulk contracts to ship goods and they're very energy efficient. And he neglected to mention that he received a commission every time uh, someone bought shares of the company. And that commission was in the 100,000 free shares of the company, mm. which he says he got purely as a gift unconnected to the fact that he walked around and told literally every person with a pulse to buy shares of this company <laughs> uh, that eventually went on went under. Um, and so he's saying that the shares he got were a gift, completely unrelated. He was not being compensated without disclosing that he was doing, uh, basically hawking these bullshit shares. Um, and he has been facing charges for a year and a half, his full tenure. Uh, he got his trial moved and he got a new judge. Uh, unfortunately the old judge was a Republican and the new judge is a Democrat. Uh, so that's going to play into his story that it's all a political witch hunt, I'm sure. But also 
Uh, it sounds like the guy is extremely guilty of <laughs> allegedly securities fraud. Allegedly, allegedly. allegedly it, guilty. We, yes. we still subscribe yes. to innocent until proven guilty. Here. Allegedly, probably, almost certainly guilty. I, yes, it sounds like he allegedly uh, is a huge, huge uh, securities fraudster. It sounds like that. I also have one more thing I want to say about that before we get off it. I realize that we maybe have already gotten off, but I'm going to do it anyway, which is that yeah. you can find it in the complaint here uh, in some of these Obama quotes. But this is like one of the big sort of thoughtless failures of the Obama administration in thinking that they could never lose again. Yep. He would say these things to people like, Listen, you can come out of the dark. You don't have to be in hiding anymore. We got these DACA and DAPA programs. Just come out. Just put your name on this list. Nothing will ever backfire here. Well, fucking did. And now, and now they have yep. lists and addresses of all these of, of tons of people who thought they were getting uh, amnesty or deferred action, and uh, you know they got the Gestapo. And to and to and to compound it all while saying, this is not the way it works. This isn't the way we do things, you know, uh, and doing his whole fucking bullshit of equivocating on the actual legality of his actions as he was encouraging people to rely on. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks, Obama. second appearance on the pod uh, i'm gonna be your mary sue here i have not read this complaint so i'm just gonna be the fresh face oh. listening to what uh, roy moore uh just when uh you think he has uh slunk away in shame completely he says no no please more shame <laughs> and Let's so keep this going uh he has sued all of the he has sued all of the women who accused him of improper conduct. Yeah. He has sued uh, a local, I guess he's a local, Richard Hagedorn uh, is uh, a local in uh, Etowah County in Alabama, who is, I guess, a Democrat and a political rabble rouser, and also the brother of a Washington Post reporter, uh, which is probably how the story got to the Washington Post in the first place. Uh, but he is suing all of them for uh, for uh, ruining his good name uh, in Alabama with a series of uh, state law complaints. Uh, notably, he does not sue any media entities. <laughs> I oh, think. That was, I, I think. He did not. He did not sue any media entities. The two big ones would have been the Washington Post and AL.com. Well, the actual malice standard would be really hard because, like, it yeah. would be impossible. Yeah, and so I think I think it's a huge surprise given past Roy Moore-related <laughs> oh, legal I see what you mean. <laughs> that he did not, in fact, try to overcome the actual malice standard. Uh, How come this thing is so see- smart? What's hey, this— but- 
No, he also he also didn't sue anyone with deep pockets. Right. Well, and and this is uh, and I think Adam pointed this out uh, at Alele Boule. Um, but the the one reason is that because that's it's a shrewd litigation tactic to only go after the people who might not be able to fight back. The other reason is because the only point, point purpose of the suit is to harass the women who spoke up against him. Why right. don't women report sexual assault? Because this shit happens. Well, yeah. no, no, wait, James. So, I don't know if that's fair. I mean, he went out and hired a law firm called protectingmen.com. Uh, and I'm not sure that you can conclude that protectingmen.com would just want to harass women who bother men. I, good point. <laughs> right. The, the answer is going to ask the court to take judicial notice of the URL <laughs> of plaintiff's counsel. One of the, one of the counts against him is, or uh, that he's filing is like obnoxiousness. No, wantonness. Wantonness. There Thank are two, you. There are two big. There are two state law claims in Alabama that I will not look up. I don't understand I this complaint just, at all. I was so confused <laughs> by his claims. I'm like, you can't file suit for that. Cause of action negligence. Well, I mean, cause of action wantonness. Cause of action defamation. Cause of action. Which negligence the negligence claim? Okay. Okay, negligence is like, all right, uh, let me boil down a whole semester tort law for you. Negligence is when you owe a duty to someone and then you breach that duty and then that causes them damages. And like the classic one is like, if you're on the road, you owe a duty to other drivers to not drive recklessly. Okay, so they're saying that they had a duty to not tell the media that they were sexually assaulted because they say it's false, but that's a defamation claim. That's a negligence claim. Are you an idiot? Do you know what well, negligence is? No, Did you they pass said, torts? but this is how he describes the duty. He's like, you have a duty to not defame me. But that's already covered by def. So th- right. I'm getting right. that. I'm getting that's that. It. But negligence is just a bad is- issue, right? No, 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 no. Cause they, they're not media entities. So that the actual malice standard only prevents the press from, uh, from, publishing it the source of defamatory articles can be sued but not the not the paper for reporting them based on the say so of the source but in this case negligence essentially repleads the defamation claim which is why the negligence claim will get tossed and the, out the IIED because it's just the same the intentional thing. And- but the, yeah they they get they get infliction of emotional distress both negligent and intentional uh but the two the two big ones are wantonness. And outrage. Outrage is the one and I was outrage. thinking of. Outrage. <laughs> outrage is the other one. And it doesn't uh which outrage just seems, seems to be duplicative of defamation. Uh, it seems what? duplicative of defamation. No, it's duplicative yeah, of IIED. They're all the same thing. So, so for intentional and emo- infliction of emotional distress, this is my favorite tort of all time. And it's a and real it, and tort. And it is a real tort. You can, honest to God, sue someone for inflicting emotional distress. But the distress has to be the, the actual legal standard of this is that upon hearing the conduct, the ordinary reasonable man would be moved to exclaim, that's outrageous. That's, that's, that, is the, <laughs> that is the legal standard for this. That's my new uh, catchphrase. Is, okay. Usually That's it has outrageous. to be, you know, usually it's like, you know, over an extended period of time, someone engages in like repeat 
horrifying harassment just to mess with you and create emotional distress. I do have bad news. Uh, I've just Lexus the tort of outrage in Alabama, and it is it is a real tort. Yeah, I assumed it was real. It's just hilarious. So it, it is most commonly used for uh, cases having to do with wrongful conduct in the context of family burials. So, for example, <laughs> if your neighbor shows up to the funeral and starts fucking with your corpse in front of everybody, that's the tort of outrage. It's basically super IIED. Super IIED. <laughs> and what is um, wantonness? Uh, I have not looked that one up yet. Wantonness. I mean, wantonness just appears uh, to be just like intentional rudeness. Wantonness seems to be I've been owned. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think what these torts are is because the tort of intentional infliction of emotional distress uh, got like it, it developed very slowly. There was sort of like an understanding that there was conduct that could become that was so outrageous as to be tortious. Um, but I think that these other torts like wantonness and outrage kind of developed very slowly and haphazardly and also in the 19th century. And then once the modern tort of intentional infliction of emotional distress was theorized, once it was discovered by legal scientists uh, in a lab in Roswell, New Mexico, uh, that it sort of subsumed these predecessor torts like outrage and wantonness. Like if someone if someone messed with your father's corpse at a funeral, you would probably plead IIED. You might plead outrage in addition, but you're both you're going to get the same kind of remedy either way. And I'm more familiar with IIED in the context of like I've often seen it as a civil remedy against uh, stalkers. So like it's a mechanism to collect for like if you can't, you know, it's it's notoriously difficult to get criminal issues with stalkers to continue. Um, I generally associate it with cases where you have no case. Yeah, I think I think that's more often where it's pled, but where it actually works. I think are maybe Robin's right. Yeah. Those are the times yeah. when I've seen it actually be upheld as like, okay, this behavior is objectively insane. But yeah, anybody who gets pissed off and rage, you know, rage pleads IIED. Yeah. To be clear, this is, uh, this, this case is closer to Tara's yes. example. Yeah, this case is outrageous. This case is a guy suing the women who had the the audacity to tell, talk about the things that he did to them. Right. So let's talk, let's talk about uh, the actual, the actual factual pleadings here because they're pretty funny. Uh, one of the things that they point out is that Hagdorn, uh, the one whose brother was uh, is a Washington Post reporter, they point out that Hagdorn was married by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And, and it was a gay wedding. She was she was the officiant at his wedding to his husband and because Roy Moore is critical of Obergfell, the case that legalized uh, gay marriage, uh, that is proof right there. That is proof that uh, that uh, he has a bone to pick with <laughs> with Roy Moore. And that was the, the heart of the conspiracy. Can, can, can somebody who's connected to the Internet uh, just go to www protectingmen.com quickly. Oh, I'm on my way. protectingmen.com. This site has stepped out for a bit. <laughs> the site has been suspended. Oh, no. Wait, what just oh, happened? Son of a bitch. All right, guys, let's Wars, register uh, this. Wars Law Firm's website has been removed from the internet. Okay, who, who on this podcast right now, we're registering this site right now on the cast, and we are going to redirect it to the Mike Dicta Twitter account. Wait. Wait, who is protecting men? Men are left unprotected at this very moment. 
Uh, thanks to Roy. <laughs> I have never been so afraid. Um, okay, the other the other two things that I liked in his factual claims, liked in the sense of found very funny. Um, he makes a big deal, and this was a huge deal when he was asking, when his crazy attorney, the one who got like a box top law degree <laughs> uh, the last time, that guy, he he demanded a retraction from the Washington Post and AL.com, which they responded by laughing at him. But they always refer to nine accusers, and he's like, look, bub. There are three accusers. <laughs> and and, oh, and the difference better. between nine and three is part of, like, is a very central issue in his complaint. I agree they're different numbers. <laughs> well, and did we talk about the shit posting? Oh, yeah, there's there's a couple of paragraphs uh, where they, they talk about uh, how Hagedorn posts Happy New Year, Roy, because Roy had lost. And the they like and they post on <laughs> Facebook about like how much they hate Roy Moore. And that is part of his defamation claim is the things that these people are putting on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> Right, but they're they, not defamatory. No, they're just right. Insulting. They're just well. That's where the wantonness comes in because they're very rude. <laughs> yeah. Well, how I can't I can't think of any possible reason these nine or perhaps three women would have to hate Judge Roy Moore. I I don't <laughs> I can't think of anything. Right. So it's clear this is a, a, a pernicious pattern to defame an upstanding citizen who has only been banned from one mall. I am curious though. <laughs> Buried in all of the bullshit, there was one kind of little nugget of something that might potentially be an actual thing. Seems unlikely, but go on. And he mentions the um, the notes, the yearbook note that she forged. No, she, that well, I mean, they they disagree on what it was. She does. The, I think it comes down to this. He very clearly wrote the note in her yearbook, but after the fact, she like annotated it to be clear about who the person who wrote the inscription was. Like she just like added the phrase DA and it looks like he signed his name Roy Moore DA. Right, no, and like but that's the thing. Like that's that that would be the only even remotest kernel. Of something where I could see, but only if he didn't write the rest of the right, and he claims he didn't. Right, that's like the so yeah. that would be the only allegation that I think would even uphold on the on the face of it. He claims yeah. that he had a, a legal assistant while he was a judge whose initials were DA, and that's who. Uh, yeah, was the law clerk. He, really? he claims that the law clerk was signing his. Oh, I blew right. Yeah. This is a judicial order. This is not the yearbook. Yeah, this was this was an yeah. order, and he claims that the law clerk was signing the orders. Oh, yeah. oh, As Roy okay. Moore slash DA, um, which would make sense, I suppose. Is the, that a thing? Uh, and the other, the a couple of other things that I thought were very funny. Number one, uh, he says he says one of the things that was defamatory uh, in these articles was that they, was that they said that he didn't care about, uh, Charlottesville. Right. 
They like they were people were like, he doesn't care about Charlottesville. He hasn't commented on it. And the the accusation that I don't care about Charlottesville is defamatory. In fact, I issued a statement. And so I'm going to read you in full the Roy Moore statement on Charlottesville. Tell us. He says, the violence and hatred behind the events in Charlottesville is unacceptable and must be stopped. These inexcusable acts will only cause more violence and division in our communities. Now is the time to turn to God and ask him to change the hearts and heal our land. My prayers go out to those innocent victims involved. It sounds End like quote. he's saying the Nazis shouldn't kill people. They should just pray to win. No, we uh, should be like praying for That's the Nazis to win. He's real vague about it. <laughs> oh, right, right. That's definitely right. Well, that's the innocent my victims that's here. That's my point, Andy, is that it's super. The innocent victims who uh, lost <laughs> right. their jobs at the burger stand after being photographed. <laughs> I support. I support the troops of every country. The troops that aren't even troops. He doesn't. He's he's non-specific about the events. He's non-specific about what's unacceptable. He's non-specific about the inexcusable (laughs) acts. Like like all of it is just said in the broadest sense, so that in like depending on who he's talking to, he could just be talking about it. In my opinion, I'm against the bad things, but what I like. The good stuff. And we should like, pray for it. I can't we should pray for many, more good there stuff. There were many good people on, on both sides. <laughs> both sides. I do love, uh, one of my favorite things, my dad was a big Rush Limbaugh oh listener God. growing up, uh, which explains nothing about me. And so uh, one of the things that they do in this complaint is they really torture some sentences so that they can use Democrat as like a noun. So they can, be, they can say like the Democrat candidate, Doug Jones. And things like yeah. that, which is very classic Russism of not saying democratic. It's always the Democrat Party. Yep. Uh, it's great. It's really a talk news radio, talk radio complaint. And I dig it. Good job. Good job protecting men.com. I'm sorry about your website. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and then the, I guess the last thing that I will point out about the complaint is that very early on, he mentions how long he had been in public service in Alabama and how often. He had stood for election for various offices, some wins, some losses. And he says no suggestion of personal impropriety had ever been raised. I just like, oh, don't think that's no, I think, true. That's not true because what happened is basically like it was an open secret in Alabama. Like it wasn't news, but like everyone kind of knew, oh, yeah, there's some weird shit with Roy Moore in Etowah County. And all it took was a national focused election for like New York Times reporters to actually come into a Senate race in Alabama, which would normally be a very boring thing to say like, hey, so that Roy Moore shit, did he uh, fuck with kids? Well, right. but I mean, you think about you think about like you think about like a Harvey Weinstein. He, he made hundreds of movies uh, and nobody ever said anything. And all of a sudden now they say something. Uh, I don't know. Seems strange to me. The Roy Moore stuff too is also kind of couched in this like weird religious component to the, you know, there's this idea that like once you reach sexual maturity, like you're a woman, regardless of what the law says and therefore you're fair game (laughs) essentially. And like, it's on the teenage girl to make sure that they're never around someone who might potentially think that they're like sexually available. So it's, you know, there's there was a lot that went into this open secret thing. And a huge component of that is the fact that this was considered socially acceptable behavior within the community. And it's only just now starting to change. Like, 
Which I think, I mean, which, but it also, I think, explains why the Washington Post would make a big deal of the story when he's running for Senate in a way that the local papers might not. And I think the local papers would have been, I think, much more afraid of retribution than Mm -hmm. the Washington Post would have been. I mean, he was a powerful guy. He was the chief justice of the Supreme Court of Alabama. Before that, he was like, you know, the district attorney in Etowah County. And so he had just had like a series of, you know, powerful uh, Mm -hmm. positions. And it's the sort of thing that it's not really that surprising that the first person to really break the story big is going to be an outsider. And then Mm -hmm. once the Washington Post ran it, then AL.com can come Mm -hmm. in and piggyback, you know, Mm -hmm. once the seal has been broken and then do a lot more local reporting to really blow the story up. I feel bad for these for these. Uh, defendants, these women in this complaint, because they're going to have to, I mean, just to tie it together with the earlier thing, if you don't show up when somebody sues you, then the court, you know, will take jurisdiction over you and just issue a default judgment for whatever they want or to something reasonable. And so they are going to have to hire a lawyer to defend them uh, against this moronic thing. And it probably is going to cost them some amount of money. And they're just, you know, he's just not done torturing these people. You can abuse you can abuse the shit out of people by just suing them, uh, even right. on a frivolous basis. It's a great system. We oh. love the law here. It's fun. <laughs> so very important uh, to note: uh, men are not protected. That is the takeaway yeah. here: is that uh, someone, someone, please protect. Them. I tried to buy this website, yeah. but it's already taken. But you know what's not taken, and they're offering to me for forty five hundred dollars: protectingwomen.com. <laughs> this is an abuse-free podcast. Hell yeah! I I feel like I'm really being uh, being spoken over here, guys. Yeah, take it up, take it up with the law firm <laughs> that doesn't exist. There's a reason. There's no protecting women, Robin. Maybe if you bought protectingwomen.com, you could hire an attorney to protect you in these situations. Maybe, Maybe I could. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Any closing thoughts from anyone? Uh, it's absolutely good to report sexual assault when they, when your abuser is about to take a very powerful position. Fuck that guy. Do it. I don't give a shit. Uh, it's awesome. It's great. Same thing happened to the Wyoming Secretary of State. It rules. He's not going to be governor. It's awesome. Please do it. It's not great to obviously uh, be abused or assaulted, but like it's a common thing to be like, I can't believe they're coming forward now. Absolutely come forward now. Now and as a guy who doesn't have to face any of the consequences, I agree with James. That's Ladies, right. do what's going to be best for you in all situations. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's really the best advice. Is, yeah, I was yeah. joking. Oh, James just got out. <laughs> yeah, it's true. James just got out. It's the man. second time in three weeks I've been out by Robin. Uh, and it's fine. Both times it's fine. Because you, know you know what I do? I listen to women. <laughs> Don't listen to me. Give your money to me. <laughs> Venmo me for my emotional labor. <laughs> At Batman's Robin on Venmo.com. All right. Well, thank you all uh, for listening to episode 14 of uh, Mike Dicta. Uh, thank you to uh, the panel, uh, the Hell Dude, and James, and Robin, and Andy. I am your host, Charles Star. Thank you, and Bye. good night. Bye, guys.
favorite actor, Dennehy Favorite drink on bulls, bears, hawks, socks, bulls Say goodbye a little longer like I ate a piece of big red Grow a mustache the size of Mike Dicker's forehead Hair combed to the side, looking like a piece of foam Buick speakers, red cooler, 85 bear zubas Polar sauces, browers, walking like my cockers Stacy Adams, no shirt, jewels to get a case of squirt Wife's pissed cause I forgot to get the minute rice So I'm back in the damn Buick to get a stinking bag of ice To get a stinking bag of rice, my wife Jules is cute Her taste really moved me like I ate juicy fruit Had me dancing like Chris Penn and Footloose 85 Walter Roos, old style pack of cools Go to Ace, no tolls and weed whacker fuel 85 Bear Zubas, Stacey Adams got ruined For the basement sump pump, shop vac, clean up Cook brats, cook chops, your heat shouldn't be that hot Keep your juices in the chops, keep your juices in the brats Serve them on paper plates, tater salad and great pop My favorite actor was Denny long before he played night When Barringer was a substitute, everything was going right Even after Jordan left, and Dave Corzine retired Sean Dunstan's wild throws, and Mike Dicker got fired Favorite actor, Dennehy Favorite drink, old Dulls Bears, Hawks, Socks, Bulls Play softball with the guys, wife made curly fries Drink about four Dulls, grounded out, two pot flies In the Buick, down western, stop and get some more brats On sale chicken, Italian sausages, orange pop This week, fishing trip, gotta get some new flies Wife packed turkey subs, Jay's chips and peach pies Watch a little Dennehy, pull out the laser disc Sniper one, two, and three, Barringer makes great flicks Listen to the shuffle, rewind Richard Dick's part Damn, I left those orange pops in the trunk of the Skylark Sneak a couple old Dulls, shit, there's my damn wife You know, honey, I'll be back, I got Gotta get some more ice Back in the damn Buick I should go to the damn bar I saw Dick once in the Eatons in a sports car Favorite actor Dennehy Favorite drink old Bulls Bears, Hawks, Sox, Bulls Play a little poker Spend time with the wife Take her out to Bennigan's See if they cook chops right Go and get a laser disc Projection screen TV Portillo's Italian beef And a movie star Tommy B Back in the damn Buick Cut on WCKG Caught a song by Glenn Fry And an interview with Dennehy So I'm driving down Western Ave Think I'm gonna stop at Zayers Got a splitting freaking headache, so I popped a couple bears So I'm back in the damn Buick, think I need an oil check The baddest of George Thorough, good smoke stones on my deck Read the sports section, bears and their old line Trying to find a decent Fiero with a for sale sign Cut on WCKG, Huey Lewis and the news The heart of rock and roll is still beating Do -do -do bears Do -do -do -do. Favorite actor, Denny Favorite drink, all Dulls Bears, Hawks, socks, Bulls Favorite day, Sunday Favorite team, the Bears Favorite store, Ventures, Sayers, Sayers Favorite show, Danza Ruffles, 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 ruffles.